Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. My guest today, I'm very, very excited about. You all asked for more athletes, so I'm giving you more athletes, and this one is really special. Sasha DeJulian is a self-described on the website. I love what you wrote. You wrote, climber, writer, and philanthropist. I love that triad. So um, she's probably going to be too humble to brag for herself. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She is a world champion rock climber, three-time national U.S. champion, the undefeated Pan American champion since 2004. And she has climbed some of the most difficult climbs in the world. We'll talk a little bit about that. Doing first ascents, and we'll talk a little bit about that. I think most people, it's kind of cool because with uh, Alex Honnold now, people understand rock climbing a little bit more. So Sasha, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. And I'm super psyched to talk about um, a lot of different stuff because you've had a really, even though you're young, you've actually had a pretty interesting uh career and experience in life so far. So welcome. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we could could nail this down and make it work. And it's a total honor to be on your podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you. And and I yeah, I I think um I really it's um, you know, we'll we'll jump right in. Give a little bit of background on, on your on your climbing history and some of, you know, the highlights. And then I really want to get more into like Sasha because we've talked in the past and I know you've had health issues, you've had nutrition issues, you have a new bar company that I'm super psyched to talk about and maybe we'll do a little giveaway at the end for everybody, but so tell us a little bit about kind of how you got started climbing and and uh what what drives you? Like what, this is, it's intense and you're kind of a badass. Excuse me, everybody. I hope this isn't a PG, uh, PG 13, uh, podcast, but yeah. So you started when you were six. Yeah. I, so I started rock climbing when I was six, my brother had a birthday party at a local climbing gym. I grew up in the DC area. So the climbing gym was this gym that's still in existence called sport rock. And I was the kid at the birthday party that didn't really care about the cake that just wanted to keep climbing. And the employee working the event was like to my mom, which I'm sure that they say that every kid's mom who goes to birthday parties, your child is such a natural, you should bring her back. Um, And my mom bit the bait and we went back on Wednesday evenings and Saturday mornings. That was when this little junior team program met, which was essentially just kids from the tri-state area. So DC, Virginia, Maryland um, would meet up and we would practice climbing, um, which was all on artificial services. My family had no idea what climbing was um, at the time. I mean, not many people actually did know what climbing was. This was 24 years ago. So I'm 29 now. So I hope I did my math right. Coming up on 24 years. Um, and so I like started going to this practice and one Saturday morning, about a year later, I was seven. I walked in to a youth regional championship 
which was essentially like a qualifier event. You did local competitions, then regionals, divisionals, nationals. And at the time there wasn't even divisionals. So this was the qualifier for us nationals for youth. Um, and I competed in the 11 and under category. I won my category. Again, there was like so many less competitors. So it was very um, different than today's day and age where I see like hundreds and hundreds of kids competing. So I might've had it kind of easier then. Um, but I made the, I won that. And then I hadn't done any of the other events. This was my first competition. Um, but it was kind of a turning point where I was like, oh, wow, climbing is a competitive sport. Like not only is it this hobby of mine, I could actually do it competitively, which at that point I was competitively figure skating. I was a big skier. Uh, at seven, at seven, you were already uh, figure skating and climbing. Yeah, I, I mean, figure started, skating, skiing, and okay, wow. I okay, skiing when I was two, and figure skating when I was about four. So um, my family's Canadian, so like the snow, ice sports, like that was in my DNA. Rock climbing was not. Um, so then I guess fast forward, like competed for the next decade and a half. Um, until I was about 24. And then I fully transitioned my career to big wall expedition climbing, which is really the root of what rock climbing is and where you get into like those, um, the big walls, like in Yosemite and the Iger and stuff like that. It's, uh, I have an expedition coming up at the end of the summer, which is like going and you live on the side of a cliff for like a month. Um, and that really exhilarates me now. And we, really focus on the film aspect. Um, so I guess that's the breakdown. That's you in a nutshell. Well, so let's let's go back a little bit because I mean, yes, you were you were six years old and I think before free solo, the average person didn't know about rock climbing. I would think it certainly wasn't something that was, you know, something that little girls thought about. So, I mean, what was that like? Was it was it a challenge for you from early on being a, a woman in this sport? Talk a little bit about that. Yes, climbing has a very male dominant culture to it. Traditionally, um, it's always been very heavily weighted towards more men than women taking part. I would say in the last at least decade, climbing has had extreme spikes in participation, which has mainly come from the climbing gym industry. Um, in today's day and age, like there's a climbing gym in most urban cities around the world. Um, but being a female in climbing, I have been told my entire career that I don't look like a climber. I've been underscored, underestimated question for my um, achievements. And I think that it's just something that you learn to deal with. Uh, what's interesting is a good friend and, and a mentor of mine, Lynn Hill, I spend a lot of time with here in Boulder because she lives down the street and it's been an interesting subject of conversation of like how women are perceived in our sport and how to really break down the gatekeepers. And that's something that I think men and women talk about. And it's really insidious, like most things in society where women are just treated differently than men. I think that climbing is an extension of that. It is 
a quite progressive sport in the terms of the money that women and men make. There's not a big pay gap, but there is a big disparity in the number of female professional climbers versus the number of male professional climbers. And there's always been this notion of like, there's not enough seats at the table. And so there has been, even within female climbers, this comparative and scarcity model, which I really am trying to break down and trying to say, like, let's just build a new table. Um, Because I think that often what happens, even in climbing across men and women, is there is this mentality that money and exposure and opportunity is so limited that people get very competitive with each other and there can be a lot of negativity that comes out of that. So a big part of what I've really focused my career on is lifting more women up and providing more opportunities for women to excel and have a similar platform that I've created for myself and similar opportunities. Um, Because I have had the privilege of our industry being um, being just having great partners and exposure that um, I think for women is more challenging than men. What's really unique about climbing is that women and men can really compete on a very similar playing field because climbing is so contingent on this strength to body weight ratio And then there's technique and there's training and the rock, like there's so many different ways that you can climb rock um, and make use of your body dynamics. So the way that I would scale a cliff is going to look very different than some male that's six foot two and has more muscles than me, but there's not always like a necessarily like easier way to scale the cliff. Um, so you just learn a lot about body awareness and your adaptability within that space. So climbing, and I, I think that I am a little biased, but I think that it's just as beautiful and interesting to watch a female climb as it is men. So the exposure and people's engagement with actually watching climbing, I don't think is like catered towards any sort of gender in particular. But it is, um, I mean, I've dealt with it my entire career of of experiencing, um, you know, like defending my success in the sport or defending like opportunities that I have and not letting that negativity kind of permeate into my existence. Um, So climbing does have a long way to go when it comes to equality. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, you bring up a lot of interesting points that I want to touch on, you know, because um, I, I, you know, my good friend, Brandy Chastain, who I really want to connect you with for sure, like talking about, um, I, I had the opportunity of like being with her at the Rose Bowl where she scored that memorable kick, you know, where she ripped off her top and we walk through the tunnel where she went in before the biggest game of her life. And she was like, unlike the men's team, they didn't even let us warm up on the field. They had to warm up like in the tunnel. And so what she went through, and she's, you know, a little bit older than you, but from the beginning, and I still think, you know, women's soccer, it's just getting up there, which is interesting. But you you did have a unique opportunity to be kind of a pioneer in, in, I would say, women's climbing from a, on a, 
more commercial level, um, which I think is great that you allowed that to lead to philanthropy too. And that's something, you know, that I think we have a responsibility to do when we are pioneers in different areas. I say we, I'm not sure that I'm a huge pioneer, but as a physician, I still, for doing all the different things that I've done, you know, I think it, it, it really, it, 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 uh, well, we'll talk about health too, but I mean, and just to put things into perspective again, for listeners who may not quite be familiar with the nuances of rock climbing, for those of you who have seen Free Solo, my husband explained this to me, like the climb that you did, the, it's called the 5.14D, that classification. If you saw Alex Honnold climb the face in Free Solo, the face of, uh, El Capitan. El Cap, yeah. Um, what you did, the moves were at least eight grades harder than anything that he did on that climb. Would you would you agree with that statement? It's so tough because <laughs> it's apples to oranges and there's a lot of so you are correct in the grade scale and that is a very like a governing aspect of our sport and the difficulty that's included. Um when you get to different terrain and and mixed sport climbing with uh, multi-pitch and big wall and then topple in like free solo to put it quite plainly. Like I do not free solo because no. I find it's way too risky. Um, and something that I would say the effect of the free solo movie, while I think that the team did a really good job of differentiating what Alex was doing as very unique with the sport, the ripple effect of that film has been that a lot more people think that climbing is this incredibly dangerous sport which I've actually worked really hard in my career to say climbing is a sport that your kids should do. And I want to continue to reiterate that because I think that there's so many empowering aspects of climbing that bring you more body awareness and teach you these like goal setting and drive and passion and all of these um, facets of the sport that I think that could get overlooked by the perceived danger. Right. And to like, quite frankly, if you free solo, if anything happens, that's it. Reality is game over. guaranteed. Right. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a lot of different disciplines within the sport, but I guess um, the fact that that film won an Oscar and got like a lot of uh, acclaimed um, interest did lead to more people knowing about climbing as well as Don Wall and Meru and um, Valley Uprising. And there's been quite a few films lately, um, which is exciting. It's exciting for our sport to have more of a platform and for more people to just be aware of it. But I do always find myself differentiating because... I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Like I really like mitigating risk and knowing, you know, how to control the risks that are on hand. Right. No, no, no. My point in talking about that was not to, I mean, Alex is uh, an outlier for sure. I mean, and, uh, you know, my husband, Benji, who you also know, knows him. And, you know, that that's not how really rock climbing, you know, should be done for most people. My point was, is to establish what a badass you are for the average person that has no idea what 5.14D is. So I want people to understand the strength and, and, and commitment and and 
discipline, like one of the things that Benji was explaining to me about this so I could talk to you better was, you know, that to do a route that is that complex or anything that's that complex takes hundreds of days of training and practice and precision and thought. And, and, you know, that's where you, so I think everything that you say, like that's the aspect of the sport probably that you kind of bring that all together. And I do think it's a great sport for kids to teach them discipline and the, the you can't just go up there on even at a gym in a climbing gym you can't just go and, and climb something I've tried it trust me and then I can't hold a coffee mug for three days because my forearms are burning so much but you know that was my point is to try to to give the audience some sense of you know the, the difficulty of of the elite level that you've achieved and then we'll dial it back to the to the regular person so what are some of the kind of most challenging climbs that you've done and honestly how long did you train for them yeah the some of the most challenging climbs that i've done have been um the hard sport climbs like the 514d um which is yeah, it was at the time the hardest climb achieved by a woman in the world. And also for me, the evolution was then applying it to bare walls. So big walls include multiple pitches on end. And so some of my hardest um, achievements that I feel really confident on have been 514 big walls, like Mora Mora in Madagascar, where you, you are practicing these sequences and it's very mind body. Like you go to this sequence on a 2000 or 3000 foot face of a cliff and you have to figure out exactly down to the millimeter where your fingertips touch the rock and how you can adjust your hips just slightly to make a better vantage point on your feet to then press off of like the very tips of your toes and generate enough contact strength with the rock so that you are doing this balance of like power and um, technique and endurance all brought together. Um, one achievement I feel really proud of is the first free ascent that I did in Yosemite um, called the Misty Wall Project. I have a big expedition this summer, actually, with an all-female team um, to go and try one of the hardest big walls in the world. And it would be another first female ascent. And I'm going with the alpinist film, um, you may know her from Brett Harrington and a good friend of mine, Matilda Suderland. Um, so we'll be out off in Northwest Spain in a national park called Pico de Europa, um, trying this climb that's only been done by one other team before. And we'll be camping for a month and living on the side of a cliff and kind of the process is like you arrive to the base of this big mountain and you have to figure out okay, this is the sequence down to the like five feet of terrain across 2,200 feet is this climb. And it's really interesting because you could be totally capable to climb 99.9% .9 of a climb, but then come down to like one very specific move that takes just like hours and hours of training of preparation to actually be able to execute. Um, so it is a really interesting sport in that way. Like training involves for me being actually on the rock practicing climbing like sport specific training but then also a lot of gym training a lot of crossover like lifting and cardio um 
finger strength, like what you mentioned, something unique about climbing is people new to the sport, they go to like go climbing for a day. Great. It's fun. Then the next day, like your forearms are just like totally gassed. So that is when I I'm in a pool of like other for instance, Red Bull team athletes. And we're talking about like our strongest muscles. I'm like, maybe it's like Weasley or me, but like probably my fingers. Um, because that's just so integral to succeeding on really challenging rock faces is being able to hang your entire body weight for hours and hours on end, sometimes weeks on end off of um, your fingertips. Yeah, no, it's crazy. All right, well, let's switch gears a little bit because the podcast, I could talk to you. I think this stuff is super cool, but I guess I'm closer to it because Benji, my husband, was actually climbing El Cap, uh, not like Alex did and not without ropes when I was pregnant with our first child. So I have been, I was like thrown into the rock climbing world. Prior to that, I really didn't have any understanding of it. But let's talk a little bit. I mean, what I want to get into is kind of, you've had fitness challenges, you've had health challenges, you've had orthopedic challenges. What was, what was your, your first, um, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the, the orthopedic stuff first and how you work through that. Cause I think that was pretty major. And then I really want to make sure that we have plenty of time to talk about nutrition. Cause I know that's something that you and I both are passionate about and you have an amazing new bar company that I want to make sure that we have time to discuss. So let's talk a little bit about, so the, the cross training, you're, you're in the gym lifting, you're doing cardio, and then you're doing more of the sports specific stuff stuff, but you had a pretty bad injury. Tell us about that. Yeah. And all of it really relates together, like from injury to nutrition to training. Um, so it is this beautiful triangle. Um, my biggest injury to date, cause yeah, I've broken my back. I've cr- cracked growth plates and whatever, but I did have double hip reconstruction surgery. And that was because I had the genetic disposition of hip dysplasia, which then had early onset symptoms of just overuse from 23 plus years of climbing. And that led to me completely shredding both of my labrums on both sides of my hip. So what they did was a PAO and a scope, which was a total of five different surgeries. But essentially in layman's terms, they broke my pelvic bone in four different places to cut it up and then shaved down the femur head, knit together all of the surrounding tissue back together, um, and then reconstructed so that my femur head would stop popping out of the socket, essentially, because it had no protective space and the pelvic socket was too shallow. So what was happening was I had hypermobility, but no stability. Um, So I was really uh, in chronic hip pain for years, probably three years prior to me actually getting the surgery to the point that I really had bought out all the time that I had. And my choice was to go a couple months longer and have a total hip replacement, which would hinder my ability to continue as a professional athlete in climbing, which is very hip dominant sport. And you go out on these like very remote expeditions where you can't run the risk of a hip uh, replacement failing you or having this PAO set of surgery. So I had that on both sides. It was a total of uh, about a year and a half of surgeries all said and done. I took nine months off climbing. And um, now what's amazing about the body is that was really a big turning point for me to really hone in on my nutrition. And I was like, for 
basically nine months of my life could do nothing. And that the largest time off from sport that I had taken prior was about six weeks. So during that time, I really focused on what I could control, which was really letting my body knit back together. And that came down into focusing heavily on PT and nutrition and breath work, visualization, um, all of the things that you can do while not bending your hips 90 degrees and staying completely flat. So there were insane restrictions. Um, I had the first set of surgeries. And then as soon as I could put weight on my leg, then I had the next set of surgeries on the other side, which was wow. pretty mental. But the reason I did them so close together was to just bring down that overall time so that I could get back to being a professional athlete. Um, and during that time I did get to start writing a book and I started my company, which I had actually come up with the name 12 years ago. Hmm. Um, I had always made my own bars in my kitchen, in my college dorm room at Columbia. Um, and I would like package them into little balls and send them out to my friends and bring them for my expedition teams that I, you know, taking out eight hours of training every day. I had a lot of time on my hands. So I started <laughs> this company, um, which has been great. It's uh, the reason I always made my own bars was because you go and you like, you live off of bars as a climber or as an outdoors person or just like being busy on the go. and Or as a busy mom. Yeah, I also do it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> busy mom who yeah. works out. I live off bars too, sadly, but uh yeah. And, and I wanted real whole foods, no preservatives, no chemicals. And also I wanted greens and adaptogens and adaptogens had played a major role in my recovery. Um, yeah. Let's go a little bit deeper in that before we get to the bars. Cause I really, you really do, you, you understand nutrition better and you've, you've, so how did that start? Like, what were some of the keys that you, what was your nutrition like before? And what were some of the key things that you learned that you believe helped you with recovery and now are probably going to help keep you even healthier long-term. So how did Sasha eat before uh, young Sasha? No, that's a great question. I mean, for so young, young Sasha um, ate whatever she wanted um, and including gluten, including refined sugar. Um, I did go through climbing again as a strength to weight ratio sport. And so I've gone through my own bouts with disordered eating when I was at the climax of my competitive career. Every single woman that I and man that I looked up to in the competitive circuit who was at the top of the podium had an eating disorder more or less. Um, and so that really led me to be very restrictive with what I ate, very scientific about caloric intake and caloric output, um, to the point that it made me more, uh, weak, quite frankly, and, and not set up in a position for long-term success. So that was probably a shift that I experienced in my late teens, early twenties, and during that time, um, I started as a freshman at Columbia and I started kind of, um, learning that to be a normal college student, you'd have to loosen up a little bit. Um, though my college experience was really different in the way that I was living in New York city, but I was still actively competing. And as a professional athlete, I had to leave New York on Thursdays, come back Sunday nights or Monday mornings from 
Asia or Europe or across the country, fly in for class Monday and then fly back out Thursday. So I was really a ghost to, to being present for any sort of social outings, um, more or less. Um, I think the balance was just really rigorous and I don't think that I had balance. I think I just operated in the chaos. Um, but my nutrition really suffered during that time because I was eating a lot of inflammatory foods and I was experiencing a lot of fatigue and a lot of bloating. And shortly after that, I realized I learned that I was celiac, which was a big change for me because that helped adjust a lot of the inflammation that I was experiencing where I didn't know. I mean, I, and I think that that's the issue with a lot of people, um, experiencing issues within their body where you just start comprehending fatigue as a way of life or inflammation as a way that your body is just, just is, and you don't really know the reasoning behind it. Um, and I can actually accredit joining the Red Bull team as a great, um, transition for me where I was lined up with a nutritionist and a team of experts who could really like do my blood panels and help me figure out what I was even intolerant to, let alone like completely allergic to. Um, and after graduating from college, I would say I put more of an emphasis on nutrition and eating clean because I actually had the time, which kind of goes back to like, it's not easy to maintain eating healthy on the go. Um, in today's society, like there's, if you go to an airport, like it's so hard to, if, if you don't have expert training in nutrition, totally know, like, what should I eat? Or if, if your life is like fast paced and moving really quickly, it's hard to say, okay, I'm going to really focus on my macros and make sure that I get a lot of protein, make sure that I get my greens, make sure that I have vitamin C in each meal, um, stuff like that, that even when I knew, um, what my body should be having, it was tough for me to know. Um, so my health issues really stem from like being celiac and not knowing having a thyroid issue and not knowing. Um, Oh, wow. You got the double whammy from, uh, autoimmune, huh? That's, that's, uh, people don't realize those often go together. The celiac and autoimmune thyroid disease are often synergistic, but it's, it's really, it's, it's interesting because not knowing that and, and having a diet that for you was inflammatory may have actually accelerated the hip deterioration, which is kind of a bummer, but whatever, you figured it out. And if you hadn't figured it out and you had just had the surgery and not actually changed your fundamental way of eating, who knows where you would be right now if you would be heading for this expedition in Spain. So I'm glad you got the correct diagnosis. I'm just curious though, like, you know, for for people out there, you know, I, I think celiac is still markedly underdiagnosed. So you had your main symptoms were bloating, fatigue, anything else? Did you have any gut symptoms? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like major gut stuff? issues. So you had that for years. And did you ever go to a doctor and ask about it? No, I think I just, you know, like a lot, um, maybe more people than just me, like, you just kind of think that that's the way the body is because there's no scale of comparative um, 
existence of knowing what your optimized self is versus your not optimized self. And I look back to the way that my body was and I'm like, wow, I thought I had like leaky gut. Like there was a lot going on. You did. You did have leaky gut because when you have celiac and you're eating gluten, that causes leaky gut. Like that's one of the legit causes. So that's kind of an overused diagnosis, but um, yeah, you definitely had it. Well, it's also interesting because you think of leaky gut and like, for me, my perception was always someone who wasn't a professional athlete who had like some sort of scope of eating healthy, but healthy for me looks different than healthy for other people. And that means, so yeah, fast forward, like to, um, when I, I had all these hip surgeries and stuff, I was like, okay, I'm going to completely cut out refined sugar from my diet. Um, I, I already don't drink all that much. And, and I think that everything in moderation is okay. Like it's hard to say, especially maybe your podcast listeners are more, um, evolved than I am, but like, (laughs) to say like, don't have a drink, like that's tough. Um, I think that, yeah. And never eat sugar again. No, no, no. That's why the name of the podcast is Practically Healthy. Not perfectly. We're practically there. Um, Yeah. yeah, Because I'm just, and even with everything, like, I mean, the only absolute for you, because you actually have celiac disease, is the gluten. Because we do know that having gluten, if you have celiac disease, can increase your risk of having some cancers in the gut as well as a host of other problems. So I think that's really important. But for most of us, you can have a little sugar on occasion. And especially like right after you do a hard workout, I I, I actually teach my patients, I, I talk a lot about fueling your body, which is something that athletes inherently think about, at least the ones that are focused on nutrition. But it's really interesting. And I love the fact that you say what healthy eating is for you is not what it is for everybody else, because that's another big thing is we're really moving towards more personalization and precision and nutrition where your genetics, your gut biome, even your food preferences and your activity level is certainly very different than most people. So until you customize something more to your own requirements, you're really not going to be achieving optimal health through nutrition. But all right, I want to make sure we have time to cover the bars. So I have my box of Send bars. Yay. My bars. So yeah. tell us, tell us, yeah, we, so tell us a little bit about, um, so this started a long time ago and tell us what it, you have a great co-formulator. We have in that box, I have the perform and the recover, but tell us a little bit about this. Cause it's really, it's super cool how you've introduced, you know, superfoods and adaptogens and plant protein and greens, some of the things that we may not always be doing. So tell tell us about Sen. Yeah. So I, I, like I said, wanted to start Sen bars since about 2012. And that was me making my bars, putting, putting different greens powders in so that it's really hard to get greens when you're on an expedition because you're not going to be lugging like a salad head of <laughs> lettuce up on the portal edge. Like everything's down to the gram weight. So you want really nutritiously packed, dense food that you're going to get all of your macros. And we chose to do a vegan bar because it's very sustainable for the planet. Our whole supply chain is local. So we really know where everything's coming from. We know our packaging distribution. Um, my recipe developer on my team, who's a co-founder at Send Mars, 
is a former Olympic athlete who was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And he found nutrition through that route of really curing her Lyme disease. She did early um, retirement from sport and went on to get her nutrition and culinary degree. Um, So we put our heads together and she really educated me about the aspect of adaptogens and what they can do. So lion's mane and cordyceps are in our perform bar because those are really great for, as you know, energy and focus and cognitive health and endurance. And for people who don't know, those are mushrooms. So um, yeah, the lion's mane and, uh, and, and chaga and, and then the ashwagandha is more of an herb just for people who don't, you may not be familiar with this. And then you use pea protein and hemp seed. Hemp seed are actually people don't realize is a great source of protein. Um, yeah. So that's uh, so that's what helps um, with everything. But yeah, so the uh, and I I did I I had the pleasure of tasting them early on, which is and I I think the uh, um, actually I haven't tried the new salted peanut, but the lemon cherry is freaking awesome. I really like the flavor of that. So I'm I'm off to try the chocolate peanut as soon as we're done. But yeah, looking at this formula, I, I I'm I'm really kind of obsessed with mushrooms these days. I mean, people not the psychedelic ones, the functional ones that, that, and I actually, it's funny. I put lion's mane in my coffee every morning for health. You do? Oh, that's awesome. And then, um, I agree with you on, on greens too. And, and, you know, for people who are listening, who aren't, you know, professional athletes, it's still something that the majority of us do not get enough of. And yes, I wish people would eat them every day. I mean, even eating 1.4 servings a day can drastically reduce your risk of diabetes and Alzheimer's and various different diseases. So it's really essential, not just for optimal performance and recovery, um, but for optimal health. So I love that. I mean, I think, you know, a regular person who's not a professional rock climber could could really benefit from these bars as well. So there's recover and perform. So what are the different what's the difference between those two? Yeah, so I really wanted to lean into that idea of nutrient timing and yeah. what you eat and when you eat isn't going to always be the same. Obviously, you can eat a recovery bar and still go and perform. There's still the the foundation is dates and nuts. So there's no refined sugar or chemicals or natural flavoring. Even our lemon flavoring in the perform is lemon zest. It's not any sort of natural flavoring, which actually is just chemical. So that's something, as you know, to be aware of. But um, the lion's mane and the cordyceps are the main differentiating factor versus the recovery is ashwagandha and chaga. And chaga is like the highest concentration of antioxidants to any food on the planet which is pretty amazing for helping after a workout. Um, And so the flavor and concept too was like before working out or before starting a day, going into like a busy set of meetings, kind of want that like zing flavor that's going to like energize you. And then for me, after a workout, I always crave salt. So that's why I went in the direction of salted peanut. Um, And I guess... Another thing is that we do have, um, like we have whole organic tart cherries, which really, um, 
Yeah, anti-inflammatory. That's really great for inflammation. I love that. And then, yeah, the um, omegas, you get the omegas from the hemp. I mean, it's a super clean bar. Like, I mean, this is, uh, and and I know that's hard to do because I had a bar company 15 years ago. And I know it's hard to make something that tastes great, that's super clean, that also performs. I mean, I think this is really, um, uh, a, a cool thing. And the fact that you got greens in there and chia, I mean, there's some incredible ingredients and, and nothing, you know, synthetic that's going to adversely affect the gut. That's probably important for you because you can't be on a rock and having to rush to the bathroom on a port oh, man, Yeah, no, it really is. I've had malaria while living on a port ledge and that was really oh, a nightmare. God. But yeah, it has like turmeric. And what I was going to say is the bars just really taste good. And that was that was something that was really important. And then the texture. Um, I've been on expeditions where bars frozen on me and like I've nearly broken a tooth, which isn't a great look. No. So we tested them across like Antarctica and Baffin Island and French oh, cool. and heat in Dominican Republic. So we're we're very small right now. We're fresh batch, small batch. And we're local to Boulder and we exist online on sunbars.com. And um, I think our next steps is really, I appreciate you highlighting it here because we as a small business need to grow in our awareness. And I just want more people to try the product because something that I feel really passionate about is like, I've gone through such a roller coaster of health issues that now I want people to realize like, you can eat healthy and it can taste really good um, because I'm so strict, you know, and I think you pointed to it too, like celiac is often gone miss, like undiagnosed. And that's because so many of us are just living like I did, not knowing what it feels like to feel really good. Um, and I just hope that people, more people can realize that. And even if it's through like a simple bar product, that's right. Start. No, I think that I think a couple of things and then we unfortunately we have to wrap up. But I mean, I think, um, you know, people think that healthy food has to be like boiled chicken and steamed broccoli and that they can't possibly have any pleasure from eating healthy. And that's just wrong. So I'm glad that, you know, taste was central. I think you put a lot of you and your co-founder put a lot of thought into the formulation. And I, I think it's it's not, you know, just a bar. It really does have functional benefits. And when I say functional benefits, I mean, benefits from a food beyond just the calories or the macros or the fiber or the lack of sugar. So I think it's great. I'm also really into like killing two birds with one stone. So the fact that you have these kind of adaptogens and anti-inflammatory recovery compounds built within the bar that you don't have to take another product then afterwards, I think it makes it really awesome. So I'm super psyched for you and I love to support female-run businesses. So again, for those of you, it's Send Bars, S-E-N-D, Dot com and Sasha. So, where can people go to? Are you guys going to be like chronicling your uh, your climb? I know you're filming it, but are you going to do any like live stream or Instagram stuff that we can follow and cheer you on over the summer? Yes, I really plan to. Um, sometimes when you're in the mountains, service is an issue, so I'm actively trying to figure that component out, but. I'll definitely be pushing updates through Instagram and, you know, I'm on like Facebook and I've got my website and Twitter and I recently joined TikTok. I know I follow you there. It's like, I feel so old 
I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I have like my followers on TikTok. Don't even get me started. It's my son's sixth grade class and you. So thank you for yes. following me. So, and I haven't done anything in months. But so tell us all your social handle, though. That, let's hear all of them just so I, everybody has a place to go. Because I think you really are an inspiration. We didn't even get to your nonprofit stuff, but the female-oriented philanthropy, right to play, up to us, everything that you do, you're on the Red Bull team, all the brands that you work with, people need, you're a contributor to Outside Magazine, you know, Glamour's college student. There's so much extraordinary about you. I want people to get to know Sasha DeJulian. So tell us all your social handles, and then we are going to be following, and we're gonna, I'm gonna hit you up for a bar giveaway too, because I want my yes. audience to try this bar, even if you're not a rock climber uh, or a professional athlete. If you're a busy mom, you can benefit from it. So what are all your handles? And then I'll oh, let you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's definitely do a giveaway. All my social handles are quite simple. It's just my full name, Sasha DeJulian across the board. So I'll, uh, I'll be posting updates there and my website, sashdjoin.com too, super simple. Um, and we'll have to do a part two of this because I know there's, I mean, you're such an inspiration to me and I, I continue to follow you to learn everything about health and nutrition and way of optimizing life. So I appreciate you having me on the show. I appreciate that. Yeah, we'll have to yeah, keep keep track of what you eat. We got to go deeper in the nutrition next time. What really fuels a world-class athlete on an elite expedition? Like, I think that could be a whole, we could do a whole movie about that. No, a little, maybe a little short YouTube. Maybe video. a series. Let's it's cool it. though, but Sasha, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally connected. Best of luck on your climb. And also I noticed the uh, engagement ring. So congratulations oh, yeah. on that. And uh, well, good luck uh, with all all that. That's a exciting journey. I wish we had more time, but um, I appreciate you. And uh, I really admire and respect you. And I think my audience is going to love hearing about you. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you. I'll talk again soon. I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did. And I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you want to learn about, something that you want to learn more about, if there's something that you want to explain further that I've talked about, please let me know. Comment on my Instagram page. Send me an email, melina at drmelina.com. And definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week, and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.